This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. We have to work a little bit harder in a military environment to show our value added and our credibility. Mm -hmm. A military uniform walks into the room and they get instant credibility. You know that they have their Mm -hmm. war college experience and command experience. So, Mm -hmm. So I call it, instead of the glass ceiling, I call it the brass ceiling. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. Hi, everyone. I am delighted to be joined by Heidi Grant on the Smart Room and Smart Power podcast today. We're up north at the Halifax International Security Forum. Heidi is the president of Boeing Business Development in their Defense, Space, Security and Global Services Department and has over 30 years of DOD experience. Right, 32. 32. Yeah. So you've been in a couple of things. You've done a couple of, worked on a couple of issues. Right. Right. (laughs) So it's just, Heidi, it's just a treat to have you here today. Thank you. It's great to be here. (laughs) So what got you into the national security world? Yeah. Well, I grew up where my parents really ingrained in me the importance of public service, community service. My father was in the Air Force. My mother was a nurse. I grew up right outside of our nation's capital on the Virginia side, Mount Vernon, Virginia. So you kind of grow up with that government service mentality. Mm -hmm. And I've always had something in me wanting to serve people. And even if you go back to like early childhood days, I was the high school, Mount Vernon High School class president. I was my university class president. I've always wanted to represent people. So yeah. having said that, after I graduated from university in business economics, I decided I wanted to go make money. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I worked in the private sector and mm-hmm. worked for a defense contractor. And then I worked for Geico Insurance. And it just wasn't fulfilling me. Yeah. Because I wasn't able to do that government service that I was looking for. So my brother, older brother, told me about this program he went through in the Department of the Navy at the Pentagon. And he was so happy being in that job. And so I went, I followed his footsteps and went into OSD Comptroller. Okay. I'm sorry, the Navy Comptroller. Navy Comptroller. I started in the Navy Comptroller, a budget analyst program. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason what attracted me is in the government and Department of Defense at a very junior level, I started as a GS. Seven. I took a significant pay cut from private sector. Yeah. Because I just, the idea of doing something with a higher purpose and national security, that was just so intriguing to me. And mm-hmm. I never looked back. So what year was that when you joined me, the Comptroller? I joined in 1989. So, so yeah. you're joining the department just as these amazing geopolitical Earthquakes doesn't even begin to cover it. Right. Like, right. And then and part of the training program, it was a two-year training program. And usually people would go to Norfolk, Virginia from the Pentagon mm-hmm. and go get to know more. They called it fleet level budgeting. I was at the yep. headquarters. So instead they sent me out to San Diego to North Island because at the time Desert Storm was going on. 
And we're right. having to use help with the flying hour program and budgeting having to do with the war effort. So that was quite, wow. I, I yeah. say sometimes instead of being like a storm chaser, I feel like I was a contingency chaser. <laughs> it's not like wherever there was some sort of conflict throughout my career, I happened to be right in the thick of the middle of Right. And, and making, right. making the money work for these operations right. is so challenging because it's a, I mean, I'm not a budget person, but the process seems a bit slow. And all of a sudden there's these massive requirements. We've got to get things to the other side of the world quickly. And it's just a lot. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So that's kind of what got me in into the government. And they were always great with, like I said, a lot of responsibility, also training and education that programs they provide. I got my master's degree and find public administration finance through the government while I was still working. So that was fantastic. But I kind of did a pivot, left the Navy and went to the joint staff. I was one of the first people, civilians, it used to be all uniform. Yeah. And you'll see a theme here as I yeah. talk a little bit about it, where uh-huh. they really didn't have many civilians at the time, uh, yeah. at least career at the GS-15 level. So it was a new position. And this was during Bosnia conflict okay. where... The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was concerned about the cost of war. Yeah. So they wanted a civilian to look at cost estimating when before we made a decision to deploy, tell me how much that's going to cost. So that was what I started to do, working in Joint Staff J8 Mm -hmm. and just really started to get interested then in international cost estimating for conflicts. And yeah, at that time. That's incredible. So that was about the time of some of the first QDR work. Is that right? So there's the bottom up review, QD, and so like the desire of the department to right. really start linking it together. I mean, it's, right. where, it's where I got exposure to what's called integrated priority lists, where the commands mm. would come in and submit it into the joint staff, and we would prioritize and send yeah. out to the services to fulfill the capability gaps that the war fighters have identified. Yeah. And through a lot of that, I then got interested in going back to OSD controller. I would say that was my turning point in my career. I led the humanitarian assistance disaster relief budget. And I also had oversight of the combating terrorism budget. And I happened to have that responsibility when we were attacked on 9-11. So I was in the Pentagon 9-11. I was called right after New York was a attacked on how are we going to respond. And shortly after that is when we were attacked. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you my passion was just ignited for a global security after that day. You know, to know what it feels like, smells like, looks like, you know, one day of my life. And you see now what's going on in Israel and Ukraine. And it just you think about that and how the coalition, all the nations that came together and rallied around the United States to be part of our coalition at that time just ignites my passion to see what we can do for our other countries. Yeah. If you don't mind, the story of how civil servants, just everybody who was in the building that day, experienced that day and how profound a moment that was. Some of our listeners are university students who weren't born yet on 9-11. And so... I guess what I'm asking is if you wouldn't mind sharing some of your reflections of that day and that experience. Well, I think what you realize after that day is that whatever your career profession is, yeah, you're valued. Yeah. Right. So I was a financial manager. I was called back into the building hours after we were attacked and I did that not safely, obviously, but 
to put together the supplemental request for our uniformed people who were going to be going to Afghanistan to address the issue. So you don't realize like as a financial, you're so valued as part of the military operations. They can't be successful without people in that career field. We're also unique in the United States compared to some other militaries or defense because a lot of uh, other militaries, other countries, they don't have civilians serving with their military as part of their military. So right. I've served with the Navy, I've served with the Air Force in different mm-hmm. capacities, and they really value the expertise and the continuity that the civilians bring. So I thought that was something unique that kind of registered with me after that day. And I can tell you, if I could have put on a uniform and been on the front line, I was too old at the time, I would have. Yeah. So I looked then after that day going, oh my gosh, how can I do more? Yeah. And somebody came up to me and this is back a little bit. I want to talk about male alliances. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I never really sure. looked for another job. It was interesting. Somebody, mostly men that came up to me during my career and said, there's this job that I think you would be amazing. Yeah. And they told me about this job at U.S. CENTCOM, who was leading the war in Afghanistan and at the time preparing for the war in Iraq and said, they're going to take this two-star general position that's the J-8 at CENTCOM and make it a civilian. And you would be amazing at that. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm like, I was 37 years old and two-star generals are typically older than 37. I thought there's no way I would be selected for that. Yeah. And people were telling me, honestly, like, Dye your hair gray. You're <laughs> all these things. And wow, it goes right into sometimes as women, we create our own barriers. Yeah. Yeah. And think we're not good in the brain. And right. I was very fortunate to have uh, many people lifting me up going, no, you need to go for this. Wow. And I'm also, this is where I'll tie in my family. Yeah. My husband had a 15 year successful career in DC, mm-hmm. had a three year old daughter. And I thought, I can't move to Tampa, Florida. I don't know. And I talked to him. I said, could you do this for me for two years if I get selected? Yeah. And he was all in, gave up his career when I was selected for this. Wow. He's been a full-time dad when she was three. And just because the jobs I had after that, it was best that we had daddy home. And that's a personal slug. Everybody has their own, how they bring up their family, whether it's Mm -hmm. new hair or how they deal with this. But for us, it worked really well. Wow. For us. But yeah. So you move into as uh, the first civilian into what was a military role at CENTCOM. Right. right. The two-star gig. When we were speaking earlier, you called it breaking the brass ceiling. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me more yeah, about so, that. So a lot of times when I'm interviewed, when I, I leave a job, people always ask, did you ever have problems as a woman? Well, mm-hmm. I can't say that. I ever noticed a challenge as a woman, but in the Department of Defense, I noticed that I had to work a little bit harder because I was a civilian. Even though I'm talking about civilian control of the military, Mm -hmm. if I'd show up to a meeting, the majority of the time I was at the table, especially the combatant command, it was people in uniform. And I was the only civilian, oftentimes, majority of the time, only woman too. But the generals would show up with the stars on their shoulders They'd show up with the combat patch or the wings, so you knew they were pilot. And I show up, and nobody has any idea of the background and experience. Right? This is where civilians, we have to work a little bit harder in a military environment to show our value, add in our credibility. Mm -hmm. Where a military uniform 
walks yeah. into the room and they get instant credibility. You know that they have their mm-hmm. war college experience and yep. command experience. So, mm-hmm. so I call it instead of the glass ceiling, I call it the brass ceiling. That is fascinating. Yeah. And even if you look at a lot of people retire, take their uniform off. Yeah. And they may have done the job for a couple of years. And next thing you know, it's hard to compete mm-hmm. as a civilian with somebody who's commanded large formations. Yeah. So you're always having to find out how do you set yourself apart? Yeah. I'll just expand a little bit on the CENTCOM job. I took yeah. that I knew. Yeah. Tampa. So, so this, job. Is, this is 2002. Right. Okay. Yep. October 2002. And I, I show again a couple of things going on in the CENTCOM AOR. Oh, yeah. At that point. Yeah. Just a couple. Go to Sam preparing for the Iraq war. When I showed up there, I had no idea. I hadn't even heard of the word deployable. I mean, it's, okay. not, yeah. it's not something as a civilian I really understood. It was in the job description, but I thought, well, I can travel. It's not a problem. Well, as soon as I got there, the first week on the job, on the training range, I had to learn, I had to qualify on a weapon. Right. I have never touched a weapon in my life. Right. They had a uniform that said DOD civilian, all of this. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's something I didn't push back on. So this is one of the lessons learned I have is sometimes we need to push ourselves out of our comfort zone. Yeah. Right? Moving my family, doing this because... I really would not have been effective on the job mm-hmm. and then earn the credibility from my peers if I didn't go and meet them. Right. Well, meet them where they are in the ways that you could. And, you know, adapting to the culture of an yeah. organization is able to push yourself in your comfort zone, adapting to culture. Two of the leadership things. The other thing, just to share, I get a question often about being the only woman. Yeah. And the challenge like you asked, when we, I think. It actually worked as an advantage to me. Yeah. To be a be woman. Yeah. Because like I was saying, like, at many of, there were probably 65 nations mm-hmm. that were represented there in Tampa and the coalition. And even later on in my career, when I went to other jobs as secretary of the Air Force for International Affairs, mm-hmm. I did that for about eight years and I would meet with Air Force air chiefs from mm-hmm. around the world. And I found that they were more willing to talk to me because I would share my vulnerability that, look, I'm not an operator. I've never flown a jet. I don't wear a uniform. And I'd show some of my vulnerabilities. And then in return, they would share with me where maybe they had capability gaps, where it's hard to tell your capability gaps to the four-star fighter pilot, the most powerful fighter pilot in the world in the U.S., mm-hmm. you know, yeah. where, where to me... They knew that people talk sometimes they say, Oh, you're the best translator. Yeah. And, and although I don't speak fluent any other language, <laughs> what they mean by that is I could take military speak on what capabilities they need mm-hmm. and translate it into the big US bureaucracy. Right. Um, where to go? Do you go to the Department of State? Do you go to our Congress? Yeah. You know, where do you go? Get what they need and be able to translate their story. Yeah. Wow. So. So, so fast forward, you end up at DSCA, heading up a rather significant institution, to put it mildly. Yeah. And then you left DSCA to join the private sector. And what year was that? And how long time? I think it's from two years ago. Two years ago? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Two years ago. Yeah. Wow. So do you feel there's anything that you left undone right? leaving government? I do. There was one thing that I was working really hard and Defense Security Cooperation Agency, the experts there made some significant progress and has to do with financing. Mm -hmm. 
So a lot of the international military partners that want to be more value added to the coalition by increasing their capability capacity, they can't afford it. They don't have the budgets. Yeah. And the U.S. is at a competitive disadvantage right now because we don't have flexible financing. Now, the Department of Defense has done a lot working with State Department to come up with, they have approved like deferred payment plans and they've tried to get some new programs going, but a lot more needs to be done for U.S. industry to be more competitive. Okay. Right. And the idea is, and it was exciting to see recently in a supplemental language, I think there was about $4 billion put in for guaranteed loans. It's specifically for Ukraine and NATO countries. Mm -hmm. So what I'm going to continue to push, and it's not just for Boeing, it's for all U.S. industry is see if we can get that expanded, this yeah. guaranteed loan. So this would be like third party loans, U.S. Mm-hmm. banks taking on this role and expand it to the Indo-Pacific area or just yeah. more globally. And we need to do this before conflict. Right. It's not right. wait until conflict happens to a supplemental. I just think it would really be helpful both to have a stronger U.S. defense industry and stronger partners to be more valued in global security. Well, and especially, you know, one what, what of the themes that we're hearing here at Halifax and well, in a variety of different conversations is how we've divested from a, a lot of the defense industrial capabilities after the end of the Cold War. But now we're in this place where we need things like ammunition and we need a much more vibrant transatlantic defense base, it seems to me. So that's exactly. And I think... Yeah. That is my number one priority now is to make sure people understand that because the foreign military sales process, the way our policy is, is they're required to put 100% up front. Well, mm-hmm. who goes out and he's in personally buys a vehicle and puts 100% up front, right. right? Right. We're looking for payment plans that fit into our budget. Yeah. That's what I'm asking for yeah. for these countries to help them come to the U.S., make it more attractive for them to come to the U.S. industry. Yeah. Well, so to wrap up our conversation, we sort of touched on it a little bit earlier, but I'm going to ask it more directly. Do you feel that your gender as a woman has affected the decisions that you've taken in your leadership style? And if so, why? And if not, why not? Yeah, I think being a woman has impacted my leadership style and how I do business. And I have these, I call it partner values. Mm-hmm. And some people might look at this and say, oh my gosh, that's a little bit corny. But I'm like, it's a good way to remember what's important to me and what I expect of my team. Mm-hmm. The seven letters in the word partner mm-hmm. are things that I really value as a woman, as a person. And the P is to be proactive. Yeah. Hopefully you heard the theme through my discussions. I'm always looking like how to add value, be pro. Mm-hmm. So the A in partner is to be accountable. Mm-hmm. You know, expected of myself, I expected of others on the team. The R is to be respectful and to understand the diversity that our team has yeah. and embrace that and respect our differences. Mm-hmm. And the T is to be transparent. Mm-hmm. We're not always going to be able to export what people want or do what they want, but to be transparent on that. Yeah. And then network to have a wide variety. Don't just hang out with people exactly like you. Have a wide variety of network. 
and then empowering those people that can make the difference. And the last is to be representative of your organization. I feel that we also be many ambassadors for our organization, for our country. Yeah. And again, this is something, you know, I think, I don't know if that's part of the woman Mm -hmm. coming out in me, but I feel like we do lead a little bit differently and look at things a little bit differently. And I'm fortunate. I've had wonderful men, allies throughout Mm -hmm. my career that have lifted me up and made sure I had a voice. Yeah. And uh, I think we as women all owe it to each other to make sure other women have a voice. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been just a pleasure to have you on Smart Girl Smart Power Podcast. Thanks for the opportunity and thanks for what you're doing. Thank you. Get the women's voice out. Yeah. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening and join us next time.